Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So for today's question, Samantha, I very important need to know of like the kind of classic stereotypical monsters, which is the one that scared you the most? That scared me the most. Do ghosts count? I'll, I'll allow it. I was thinking more of like the universal yeah, monsters. I, I, that's but what I, I assumed. But I, I don't think I ever really scared of any of those things because it seemed also caricaturish yeah. that I never thought of it. But to me, ghosts could be real. <laughs> Maybe that's <laughs> like, like not the best example. But like, you know, the idea that there's an unknown about death, death in itself. Yeah. You know, what happens after death, who exists and whatnot. And because also growing up in a very religious home, you know, people come back to life, apparently, you know, raised from the dead. So that's what I assume. But I guess, if anything, (laughs) maybe I was the most scared of, like, vampires. Yeah. But, of course, I also had the girly, like, oh, it's also sexy and romantic feel about them. Oh, sure. So very mixed feelings on that. That's very confusing. That's confusing. Maybe (laughs) witches. Witches. Are those monsters? I guess it depends. Certainly in a lot of these horror movies, they are. Right. So I guess because like the Blair Witch Project, stuff like that really scared the hell out of me. Oh, yeah. That was good stuff. (laughs) What about you? (laughs) I agree. I think I'm in a similar vein where like I always thought mummies were really kind of silly. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially in older movies, because, you know, technology, they they moved very slowly. And I kind of thought it was funny. There are adaptions of werewolves that really scared me, but in general, they didn't. There are adaptions of vampires that really scared me, but in general, they didn't. And I don't know if you know this, but for a while growing up, I had this, I wouldn't call it an imaginary friend, but it was like a nightmare that I had that was recurring about this vampire named Vinegar. I named him that because he smelled like vinegar. And if I smelled oh. vinegar, I would like freak out. It was a whole thing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That yeah. is a very detailed like perception of a monster. Oh, yeah. My friends who grew up with me, if I bought up Vinegar, they would know who I was talking about, what wow. he looked like. One time we tried to talk to him on the Ouija board. And after that, I like threw away my Ouija board because it scared me so All Right. <laughs> oh, you played with... I don't think I've ever played with a Ouija board because I was scared of that. Yeah. Oh, it scared me. It scared me good. Mm-hmm. But the classic episode, we wanted to bring back this one that Kristen uh, and Caroline did way back on The Woman Pharaoh. And it was an interview episode. And we wanted to bring it back because we just did our episode on one of the feminist adventure, action adventure movies of our time, The Mummy, the 1999 one. Which that movie, as I said in that, I don't think The Mummy scared me. The bugs scared me. Right. But definitely more frightening than the slow walking kind of bandage wrapped one. The ride scared me more with the mummies in it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's such a good ride. Um, (laughs) Anyway, we hope you enjoyed this classic episode. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today on the podcast, we have a really special guest. Kristen and I are talking to Egyptologist, professor, and pretty much all-around amazing person, Kara Cooney. Uh, Cooney's the author of The Woman Who Would Be King, Hatshepsut's Rise to Power. All about this amazing figure in history, Hatshepsut, who was the sixth pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. And, you know, honestly, we don't know a lot about her inner life, her personal life, but we do know quite a bit now about how she ruled. And she definitely was an interesting and different figure for history. Unique. If only in the fact that she was a female pharaoh or a woman king, which seems like uh, an oxymoron almost. Um, and what we're going to talk to Cooney about is just how she was such a powerful and effective ruler who really maintained her empire's position in the world. And we're going to find out more about how she came to that power and also how her gender played such a strong role, not only in the path that she had to take to grasp that power, but also in her legacy being diminished in a lot of ways. 
And the reason that we don't know more about sort of the inner workings of how she came to power beyond the actual steps that you have to take to become king has to do a lot with the fact that those darn Egyptians did not record anything other than their super official histories and facts about their rulers. They weren't writing down who was sleeping with whom or how Hatshepsut clawed her way to power. And so there's been a lot of conjecture over the years about how this woman came to be a leader. Um, but so one important person that we can turn to to answer some of those questions is Kara Cooney. And so without further ado, let's let the interview roll. First of all, Dr. Cooney, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about why you wanted to write a book on Hatshepsut? Sure thing. Uh, my name is Kara Cooney, and I teach at UCLA. I'm a professor at UCLA. And I didn't want to write a book on Hatshepsut. I was actually approached by my lit agent who said, you should write a book about Hatshepsut. And I just thought, why does this woman keep haunting me? What is going on? Why? Because I had done this TV show for Discovery about Hatshepsut a couple of years before, which I assume he had seen. Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked me to, to then write the book. And academics like to stay in their own little niches, their own little little boxes. And he said, I said, I can't write a book about Hatshepsut. And he's like, why not? And I said, because I do the 19th and 20th dynasty and Hatshepsut is the 18th. <laughs> and so <laughs> the more I thought about um, how silly that was and how we, we stick too much to our, our uh, expected work and our expected research. And the more I thought about female power and how interesting um, it is that this woman was able to surmount so many obstacles and able to climb to the very highest pinnacle of political authority, I thought, okay, yeah, I'll, I'd like to write this book and I'd like to do it differently than, than anyone else has done it before. Well, could you talk a little bit about the Egyptian attitude toward women rulers in general and how powerful women could become and also sort of the available avenues to power for women at the time? Ancient Egypt is an unusual place. It's, it's unique in the world in many ways. Um, it's a it's a giant oasis, if you like, and it's protected on all four sides geographically. Mediterranean Sea to the north, deserts on the other three sides, cataracts down to the south. I mean, it's just it's a place that can develop in a microcosm on its own for thousands of years, and it encourages a culture that enjoys status quo and continuity and doesn't like to have a lot of upheaval and coups and and invasions. They don't have to deal with a lot of that because who have a culture that enjoys continuity, they created a political system that divinized kingship beyond anything that, that had ever been seen, and arguably anywhere in the world. It's, it's a more divinized kingship than, than um, perhaps any other system anywhere in the world. And when you have a culture that is very interested in king following king following king in the same family ad nauseum forever divinized, if there's a problem with the succession, if the king is too young, if there's an issue, then... Because you have a culture that's risk-averse and interested in continuity, they'll allow a woman to come to the throne to serve as regent for a young king or in some cases to even act as king in her own right. And more women were allowed to rule and come to the center of the wheel, if you like, in Egypt than, than in any other place, any other place in the world. And so you can talk about women like Hatshepsut. You can also talk about Tawasret. Metocris to some extent. You can talk about a woman named Sobekhotep. You can talk about Cleopatra, Nefertiti. There are many female names known from Egypt, and that is an anomaly that is that is unusual and different from the rest of the world. We would love to hear some more details, especially about the avenues through which these women could attain power. I know, for instance, in Hatshepsut's case, that there was a lot to do with religious avenues and being queen regent. So, yeah, could you talk a little bit more about those avenues? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing that the avenues to power are generally connected to the king. So a woman acts in support of the king first and then can catapult herself into power in her own right. In Hatshepsut's case, she was regent for a very, very young king. And when I say young, I mean one and a half years old, two years old. You know, when they crowned him, he was probably chewing on his crook and flail and his crown wouldn't fit and they probably couldn't keep him on the throne for longer than a minute and he wasn't paying attention to anything and probably couldn't really speak any of the incantations he was supposed to. It was probably a pretty messy affair. She's the one in control and she was then, at the age of 16, uh, perhaps, in control of Egypt 
until he came of age, which would have taken another 14, 15, 16 years. It's an extraordinary thing. Within that amount of time, she then used her ideological power as Egypt's highest priestess, the god's wife of Amun, to then catapult herself into the kingship itself. Now, other women had had different methods, but no one ruled Egypt for as long as Hatshepsut with, with as much power, uh, systematized, um, centralized power as Hatshepsut. But other women like um, like Nitocris or Sobeknofru, they came to power at the end of a dynasty when their father, the king, was unable to sire a son for whatever reason. There was only a daughter left. Then they would allow um, a woman to be king and come to the throne that way. Um, another woman, Nefertiti, she came to the throne after the death of her husband, Akhenaten, perhaps, and there's a lot of arguments surrounding her kingship. But she came to the throne in a time period of extreme ideological crisis, and she's holding on to the remnants of this tattered religious experiment. And another woman like Tawasret in the 19th dynasty, she's very much like... like um, Sobek Nofru and and Atakris ruling at the end of a dynasty, trying to hold together the the last remnants of of her family line. And then there's Cleopatra, who very much like Hatshepsut knows that to rule for an extended period of time, she has to rule with a male by her side, a masculine entity. Hatshepsut always ruled with her nephew by her side. He was growing up as as she went along as she took on the kingship. Cleopatra ruled first with her father then with a brother, one brother after another in succession, and each of whom she may have had a hand in murdering. And then she ruled arguably alongside two Roman warlords. She made sure she always had masculine support while she was uh, inhabiting her own kingship. So there is no such thing in the ancient world, and this is frustrating to me, it's probably frustrating to you, there's no such thing in the ancient world as a pure, unsullied, feminine kingship. It doesn't exist. Every female king or every female political leader in Egypt, she, the woman calls herself a king, not a queen, because there's no political connotations to that word. Every female king in ancient Egypt had a male counterpart or some sort of masculine entity by her side. And the same holds true for the rest of the ancient world. If you look at Northwest Asia or you look at the Mediterranean region or you look at China, you look at the women who are able to achieve that, that highest pinnacle of power. Every single one of them that ruled for an extended period of time had some sort of male counterpart as support. Well, one of the fascinating things that jumped out to me about Hatshepsut being sort of accidentally groomed to rule is how she not only aligned herself with male human male counterparts, but also male counterparts in a religious sense as well, in a divine sense. Could you talk about how she also helped solidify her rule through aligning herself with the gods, making herself divine in that way. Yeah, Hatshepsut grew up in the temple. She was God's wife of Amun, Egypt's most important high priestess during the reign of her father. Probably as young, training probably began for her as young as eight or nine years old, maybe even younger, which means that that temple space, those cool stone walls, the incense smell, the chanting of the priests, the sun slanting in through the clerestory windows, all of that was just in, it was just in her bones. It was something that she knew. She also saw her father, the I, come to power not being born for the kingship himself because the king before him, Amenhotep I, had died without a son, without an heir. And they had named the I a living, breathing man, not directly related to the king, to be the, the next king. And Hatshepsut saw her father, because she's standing next to him as his high priestess, right? She sees her father using religion, using the oracle of Amun-Re, using all of these tools at his disposal to create a firm foundation for his kingship, to, to say to his people, yes, I know that we have a dynastic succession problem, but the God has chosen me, and let me prove it to you and show you how. Hatshepsut actually reveals more to us, pulls the veil away from the religious goings-on, more than any other king before. So she tells us about the Oracle of Amun-Re and how it actually marked her for power. The Oracle was this way of taking the god's most sacred, precious vessel, the, the golden statue of the god, out of its shrine. It was placed into a portable shrine, placed onto a boat-shaped thing that was held aloft by priests holding two long-carrying sticks. And like 20 priests would carry this bark out of the temple with the god's statue carefully encased inside. And people would be 
allowed to approach the bark, ask it questions, ask the oracle as it's leaving the temple things about what was going to happen in Egypt's political future, what kinds of problems they had to worry about. On one festival day, the oracle was brought out in a time period of of great uh, crisis. People were worried about the succession, who was going to be king next. They were worried about um, Tutmosis II being sickly, perhaps. We don't know the details of, of what was happening, but we know there was worry about who was going to be king next and who was going to take power. And the oracle was brought out, and Hatshepsut writes this, this story about it and records it in her Red Chapel. And she tells us that the priests holding the oracle aloft were rudderless, leaderless. They didn't know where to move. They didn't know where to go. But if you have to think, these 20 priests, they used some, we don't know if they were drunk or high or sleep deprived or what was going on, but they used the, their, their own, um, power from the gods to know where to go. This is, this is the way we, we have to understand it. And they stop and everyone in the, the outer, um, parts of the temple or in the temple courtyard is stunned and afraid because the oracle isn't moving and the oracle seems to not have a direction. And then all of a sudden, Hatshepsut's text tells us, the oracle gets up and is on the move and it goes right and then it goes left and it goes here and then it goes there. And then all of a sudden, it points itself directly at Hatshepsut as a girl, as a priestess, as the god's wife of Amun in the temple. And the oracle directs itself to her. She throws herself to the ground in front of it, raises her arms up in front of it, and says something akin to, oh, my father Amun Ray, what would you have me do? And the oracle then proceeds somehow to communicate to her. We don't know how this happened, but it proceeds to communicate to her that Egypt needs her, that Amun Ray, the god, needs her, that she is required to move Egypt through this crisis of succession, through this crisis of vacuum of power. And Hatshepsut was always so canny to use a religion that everyone believed in so fervently to mark herself for power. She never claims this power as her own personal right. She's never outwardly ambitious for it in um, in a bald way. She always cloaks each and every power grab, every move she makes up that ladder towards power, towards the kingship itself with religious ideology, always saying, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm only doing this because the God Amun Ray needs me to do it. Pretty clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's an amazing story. It really is. And this was generally accepted by the people, right? They, they said, okay, well, if this is the will of the gods, then this is how it's going to be. Or was there any sort of horror or surprise that this happened? You would think there would be some sort of surprise at marking a female, especially a female so young, for so much power. But it doesn't seem that there was any kind of pushback. There was shock. She tells us in a in later oracle, there's a later oracle that marks her as king. And then she appears as king before her people. And she says that they're stunned. They're weeping before me. They can't believe it. it but she puts it in the sense of it's a miracle. But what we never see and what, what I don't think we should expect to see from the ancient world is any sort of cynical disbelief in this oracle. And think of politics and religion today. So many people use religious ideology to support their political moves to the right or the left or whatever. This shouldn't be something that, that surprises us. The, the ideology that works best to get people politically on board is the ideology that people believe in most. So, And, and so it doesn't mean that, that you can't manipulate and use religion at the same time that you fervently believe in it. There doesn't seem to be any understanding that the oracle was somehow cynically manipulated Nobody seems to talk about it in that way, but I'm sure that Hatshepsut and her priests knew that she was the one that was going to be marked for power. I don't think this came as a surprise to anyone. I think that it, it had been planned out carefully and politically in advance beforehand, and then the ideology was used to, to pave that path. At the same time, I think they understood it as the God's choice as well. It's, it's a big difference between us and them, between the modern world and the ancient world, that fervent belief in in the gods being all around you, pulling the strings, ruling everything. But that was that certainly seems to be the way the ancient people approach their their world. Well it seems like Hatshepsut put a lot of thought into the way that she was depicted uh in in temples and across Egypt and remembered. So in what ways did she position herself as masculine and as king rather than just being feminine and queen and why did she do this? Yeah, Hatshepsut's story is not only amazing in, in that she's the only female king who rules for such an extensive period of time. 
successfully leaving Egypt better than she found it. But she's also not a rule breaker. She's a traditionalist. She doesn't expect a patriarchal society to fit to her feminine self. She knows she's an anomaly. She knows she's strange. And so as her co-king, we can never forget that she had a co-king by her side throughout her entire rule as regent and then as king. As he's getting older, she has to match him. She takes precedence of place before him. She has the primary spot in festivals, presumably in the throne room with the higher dais. She's there always in the primary position. But this kid is getting older. When she's crowned, he's nine years old. It's easy to have precedence of place over a nine-year-old, but a 14-year-old, that's much more difficult. How do you, how do you take precedence of place when you're an older woman next to a young and vibrant man? How, how do you do that? And Hatshepsut messes with this, worries about it. She, she tries new things. And we can see that transition in her stature and in her release. And she starts out, there's a, there's a statue in the Met that shows her as feminine but masculine simultaneously. It's an extraordinary piece made of an indurated kind of marble-like limestone. And she has this beautiful, delicate, heart-shaped face, very feminine, very gracile body with narrow shoulders and, and slender limbs. It's the body of a woman. And yet she's shown topless. She's shown wearing not a shirt but a naked bare chest of a man. But it's clearly a woman's upper body. And in fact, they even show her with breasts, but no nipples, as you would expect if you were showing a naked female upper body. So she's there as masculine and feminine simultaneously. And she's obviously not satisfied with, with this visage, with this image of herself, because she then moves on to a fully masculinized imagery where her body no longer has that gracile form, where she shows herself with with a buff body, pectoral muscles and biceps and all of that, which she obviously didn't have in real life, but she feels she needs to show this in her release and in her statuary to match the king that's growing up next to her. So she's she's got to experiment. She knows that she has to change her body and the way she depicts herself to match this co-king and to fit patriarchal kingship models in, in their purest form because the Egyptians believed that that monarch needed to be masculine, that that masculine rebirth was was a necessary part of the king's power. So she in some way religiously, magically needs to inhabit that masculine self, even with her feminine, her feminine body. And now back to the show. So Hatshepsut was an exceptional ruler. I mean, you mentioned that she left Egypt better than she, you know, started with it. And she amassed all of these incredible accomplishments. But it seems like all we learn about as students in the classroom are King Tut and we know who Cleopatra is. And yet not her. Why is that? Why, why has her history sort of, sort of been erased in a way from our popular understanding of Egyptian history? I've had to think about this a lot. This is this is really the crux of, of her story for me. Because as I'm trying to resurrect her, trying to get people to pronounce her name correctly, and people are like, wait, Hatsha, what? How does it work? <laughs> it's extraordinary to me that this woman who did it all right, who was the most, and I like to use this word, badass woman of the ancient world, who ruled for the longest, ruled the most successfully, is the one that we've forgotten. And, and here, here's where, where I'm going to go with this. So let's say we go out to a bus stop and we, and we just talk to the every man or every woman and say, hey, have you ever heard of somebody named Jezebel? And he or she will say, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard of Jezebel, good or bad, very bad, very bad. And you may not know the whole story that, that you know, she was a Phoenician princess, married off to a king in the Levant, and was um, upset a bunch of Yahweh priests for worshiping many gods and was thrown out of a window and eaten by dogs. You may not know all of that. Um, but you know she's bad. She did something wrong. You may say, well, okay, how about Cleopatra, person at the bus stop? Do you know Cleopatra? Indeed, I do. Good story or bad story, very bad. Interested in glamour, interested in parties, and ended up killing herself. And, and these things are known in popular culture by normal people. But Hatshepsut, people have no idea who this woman is. They can't even pronounce her name. They, they have no understanding of what she did. And I think human culture in general, loves to tell stories, replicate stories, retell stories about female failure, about women who did it all wrong, as cautionary tales, as ways to know what happens when when crisis and female leadership coincide, that crisis 
that, that when females rule, they bring on crisis. I'm here to tell you as a historian that females generally are only allowed into leadership when there's crisis. <laughs> That's the way they get into power in the first place. So Hatshepsut, as, as I always say, left Egypt better than she found it, did everything right. And that was her ultimate undoing. And that's the irony of the whole thing. She, she created a perfect package for the kings after her to take credit for what she herself had done. She did it all so traditionally, even depicting herself as a masculine entity, that in many cases all they had to do was erase her name and put in a different name and take credit for all of her vast achievements and buildings and, and just all that she did. She did it too perfectly in a way. It was that much more abstracted, that much more um, uh, normal, so that a male king could just say, yeah, I did this, erase her name very shortly after her reign was over, put all of the other names in, in their place, in her place, and, and thus we've forgotten her. So the women who are the most successful are those that we don't tell stories about, and the women that were the biggest failures, Shakespeare writes plays about them. Hmm. That's a really interesting. That's a really interesting division to draw. That yeah, yeah. I, that's fascinating and, and a troubling one at the same time, though. Yeah, indeed, uh, absolutely. You know, it's it's funny. I was um, I did a my first one of my very first discussions about Hot Chefs but to a group of female CEOs and, and power brokers in Los Angeles. Small group. It was it was a lunchtime lecture, and I'm just informally talking through this. And it was in that room in that moment with all of these female power brokers that I understood that success was something that indeed could threaten a woman with a loss of legacy, with somebody else trying to take the credit for it, that that happens more often than, than we would expect or like to think of in a patriarchal society. And, and that right there, I think, is the crux of Pat Shepsett's story. Um, well, that leads to another question, though, between kind of the, the parallels between Hat Shepsett the women around her and women in powerful positions today, because as you're telling this story, it's ringing similar bells in my mind of things that we have similar patterns of women in power, whether that's political power or even uh, power in career in career context as well. Yeah. I teach a class at UCLA called women in power in the ancient world. In the first two weeks we go through a discussion of how much power women have today. I always try to keep ancient history as topical and useful and applicable to the modern world as possible. Because humans are humans. We have the same general systems, uh, same patriarchal system for certain. So how can we use these women from the ancient world as role models, as cautionary tales, as whatever? How, how can they help us out today? And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing when you, when you look at patriarchal society as a whole, it does systematically bar women from power. And I start my own talk about Hatshepsut. I put, uh, I put Hatshepsut in context. I start my own lecture with four slides where I show how today women have so little political power. There are very few leaders of state, prime ministers or presidents around the world who are female. Why are we so hostile to that? Why are we so ambivalent to that power? There's even fewer female CEOs and leaders of Fortune 500 companies who are women. In the United States, it's 4%. Canada, it's just over 6% female CEOs. It's nothing. When we allow the free market and the human organism to pick who they want to have leadership over money, we do not choose women. It's extraordinary. Um, the military is improving because you have a very top-down hierarchical um, system in the United States, so you do see female officers, except for the Marines, but in the Air Force, the Army, and the Navy, at 20% and rising. So that's improving. Ideological power in females, there's just none. Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions do not suffer females in, in leadership positions. So all of this is applicable. All of this is useful. And in, in my class, Women in Power in the Ancient World, we look at cognitive differences between males and females, brain differences, um, how, how a female thinks or forgives versus a man, how a, a female might think of her survival versus a man. All of these things, I think, are important to bring out into the open and understand so that they can be transcended. For example, did you know that women hold grudges longer than men do? So if somebody cuts you off or betrays you politically, that a woman is more likely to hold the grudge and cut that person off than a man. And that if we learn as females not to burn our bridges, to get over those, those impasses, we would be better political leaders. But... We have other, we have strengths as well. For example, microloan lenders 
don't like to give microloans to men. They like to give them to women because the woman will buy the cow, make the cheese, make the business, and take care of her family. Too many microloans that go to men are brought into a bar in exchange for, for political capital, for drinks at the bar, and, you know, that, and men often think that way because our brains work in different ways. I like to look at the biological sources of it all. I like to think about how a female hunter-gatherer, you know, the human origins are sources for how we might think and feel. Her survival depended on her connection with her sister, with her mother, with her close family. A man's hunter-gatherer survival depends on finding game far away, making connections with other troops far away, warfare with troops far away. These are things that he depends on. So he is automatically going to be more politically inclined genetically, perhaps, cognitively, than a female who is going to be genetically, cognitively more interested in, in looking towards her inner circle. All of those things translate into how we perceive political power. So, when and I, I put a slide up in my, my lecture where I put up an image of Maggie Thatcher, Hillary Clinton, Condoleezza Rice, um, Angela Merkel, all of these women in action at a podium talking, and I put up a male slide next to it. And the females look angry, and the males look leaderly and strong. And we have these visceral reactions, these emotional reactions, misperceptions even, or just perceptions of what power is for males or females without even thinking about it. And a lot of the time we think females can't have power. They're too hormonal. They're too, they're too mercurial. They won't be able to, to have a consistent leadership style. We need the men. We, we can't trust this. We're hostile towards it or ambivalent if we're more intellectually inclined or, or open about female power. But for me, just like a baby might be, if it's a white baby, more inclined and attracted to white faces, or a black baby might be more interested in cognitively looking at black faces like itself, that doesn't mean that can't be transcended later in life. So by the same token, a female might actually be misperceived as being self-interested, as being um, uh, selfish or be seen as angry or hormonal. But if we're open about how we feel about female leadership, then these things can be transcended. So I like to look at the biological roots of it, at the, the sources of our distrust of female power. And at the very source of it all is the fact that women can have babies and men cannot. And I always go back to the story of Marissa Meyer, CEO of Yahoo, and everyone was was freaking out that she had that baby. How can she possibly be CEO of Yahoo and have a baby simultaneously? You had feminist pundits on TV saying, of course she can have a baby and be CEO of Yahoo simultaneously. When that story came out, I was at home on leave breastfeeding my child, and I had five months off, and I remember holding my kid, looking at the TV and saying, there's no way she can do it. She can't do it. Because... I, I had little support and help in that moment. I was going through postpartum depression and anxiety. And these are the things that women have to deal with. We need help to transcend our own bodies to maintain power. I needed UCLA, my university, to give me time off to go a little bit crazy, go hormonal, come back to the real world, put my kid into, into daycare system so that I could be that, that powerful female. If we don't have governmental systems, societal help. We cannot transcend our bodies, have children, and have it all. These things are all very interesting to me. I don't like to deny the biological and say, of course, we can do it all. I like to bring all of that in and say, okay, now what are we going to do next? It was a long answer. <laughs> I hope that, that, that gave you some sort of an insight into how I think about all of this. Absolutely. Well, and it reminded me of one thing that jumped out to me at the end of the book and the acknowledgments you're talking about that period of time when you had just had your son and the book comes along and you're dealing with writing a book while grappling with this new thing that is childcare in your life. But you you write, I could not have understood Hatshepsut before motherhood happened. And I was just wondering if you could, especially because the podcast is called Stuff Mom Never Told You, um, I was just wondering if you could sort of explain that in a little bit. A little bit. I mean, I know that you already did somewhat in the previous answer, but um, that was something that really jumped out to me. I have never felt more isolated and more confused and in a darker place than, than when I had my son through that postpartum year. It was a very tough year. And I actually, in 1999, went through a car accident and had severe head trauma and almost died. And that year was worse, arguably, than, than that, that year post-head trauma. It was tough because everything that you thought, as a, that I thought as a woman, that I could have 
was made intensely vulnerable in a way that that I'd never experienced before. That that child, having that child stripped me bare in a way that that I've I, I still am grappling with and thinking about because you're never more vulnerable and you're never more of a slave to your own body. And I think that in Western culture, not only do we like to deny death and pretend that it will never happen, you know, we like to live forever and plastic surgery and people die in hospitals outside of our sight. They don't die in front of our own eyes. In the same way, you know, women today, especially women who want power and want careers, put off having a child. I put off having a child until I was 38 years old. And you think, yeah, I'm not going to be a slave to this. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to be fine. You know, when I had my kid, I was the first natural breech birth at UCLA in 16 years. And 50 people watched my birth. It was a rock star birth. It was, and you know, you have that that joyous, exuberant moment, you know, a badass kind of moment. You think you could do anything. And then the long, slow water torture of sleep deprivation and breastfeeding, which was very hard for me, um, and postpartum hormonal problems, which was very hard for me, hits. And then it's a different thing. It's something that you can't really surmount. And for the ancient people, that was unavoidable. They couldn't put off childbearing. They, this was what every royal woman was expected to do. She was expected to be a womb, to be a baby producer. That was her job first and foremost. And yes, a royal woman could give the child off to a wet nurse. You know, in, in, in many ways, they had their daycare and everything figured out as well. She was a working woman, Hatshepsut, as well. And, and she had support. She, she probably had a lot more support than I did giving birth in that, in that year after the baby. But to understand the obstacles to female power, I think I had to go through that, that childbirth experience and understand that, that the body, the female body is really the, the ground zero, the biggest obstacle for why female power is so attainable. And if we don't have social support systems in place, you'll, you'll never be able to get it. I, I've got to tell you, your answers make me want to like run up and down the street, high fiving people. <laughs> I just loved, I've, I've loved your responses. Um, well, and, it, and it touches on so many different things that we, yeah. the, recurring themes in the podcast, recurring themes that we hear from, especially our our women listeners, especially mothers who have careers and are balancing all of this stuff as yeah. well. So. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, you know, we did a whole series on lean in and women in the workplace and, yeah. and all of that stuff. And awesome. so, I mean, it is kind of fascinating to hear those same ideas applied to ancient women who really, I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It sounds Absolutely. like. Absolutely. People are people are people. The, the biggest difference though is life expectancy. So we get to live till we're 80 or 90. They got to live till they were 40. Big difference. And they had to bury so many children. We have no notion of this. If a baby dies right. now, it's a weird and strange thing that people are ashamed of and can't talk about. In the ancient world, we would have buried half of our children under our mud brick floor in little pots. It would have been a normal thing. Yeah, <laughs> right? That's, that's some severe trauma. That's something that we can't even, that we can't even fathom. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, I got the impression because of issues like that, that people in Egypt and in the ancient world in general face that they did have to pack in so much stuff into their brief lives. Uh-huh. And, you know, Hatshepsut was certainly no was certainly no different. I mean, if anything, she packed 30 times more into her life. And so that kind of leads me to our next question, which is her legacy and what you consider her legacy to be sort of in general in Egypt and in our history, but also in terms of the perception of women rulers, what effect did her legacy have? Yeah, I mean, Hatshepsut is that extraordinary woman who who did it all right and got forgotten. That's the point that that intrigues me the most, upsets me the most that I that I kind of mess with a lot because I don't think it's it's that unusual today. It's the woman who knows she can't change the patriarchy doesn't try to, tries to fit it. And that's, you know, that's the way she has to work it. If a woman wants it all today, to have the baby, to have the job, she can't change her body and she can't change the economy of her womb. She can't change the fact that it takes that long to gestate, to breastfeed. Those things are unavoidable. And, you know, arguably women have to spend more time 
with their children, with the upbringing, with the breastfeeding than they did in, when I, when my mother was, was bringing up her kids when bottle feeding was normal. I mean, in some ways it, it made things easier, in some ways not. Um, there are great expectations on, on women having children with careers to do the motherhood all in, completely and totally with, you know, two years of breastfeeding, which I did. And, um, you know, baby carrying, and which I did, and family bed, which I did, and all, all of those things so intense, so intensely, and still do the career and the, and the powerful side so intently and not lose any of it on either side. It's impossible. It's impossible to do. Something will be lost. And, and yet we as women gain something as, as we go through and we, and we learn, we think differently, we rule differently, we, um, we, we behave differently when we have power. And now that we're finally allowed to have power, people see females, I think, as more of an asset, um, as, and they're less, um, misperceived and there's less hostility towards female power. I think Hillary's gonna have quite a run, um, in, in the next couple of years and we'll, and we'll see, I think, in the next eight years, a discussion of misogyny in the way that the, the Barack Obama administration has been a discussion of racism and how people perceive or misperceive the agenda of a certain person because of their the color of their skin, how they grew up, their gender. Um, these things are being discussed and talked about very much like gay marriage and what it means to be gay and what it means to have that identity. All of these things are being openly discussed and talked about and very much transcended. Um, so Hatshepsut, I mean, she just... She, she helps us do that because of her success and because of her power. And if I can help to resurrect her and get people to be able to pronounce her name, then that, then I can, you know, I, I can somehow understand what it means to try to have it all. Because that's what we want. And that's what she did. And, and she got erased for it. You know, her name and names were erased. Her images were erased. Um, how often does that happen today? I think we need to keep our eyes open. If Hillary does become president, will what will be her legacy be? How will that work? What's the legacy of Maggie Thatcher? What's the legacy of, of an Angela Merkel? How does how does that work? Um, I think legacy is super important because if you look at women in the ancient world, they never have a genetic legacy. They never do. They don't get to become king on their own in their own right, get a boyfriend or a lover and have a child that's going to follow them onto the throne. It always ends up with some other family, some other dynasty, some other man taking over after them. They're just placeholders. They're just stopgaps. They're just convenient things to have in the moment. How can we women create a legacy? It didn't happen in the ancient world. How can we transcend it and do it now? It's an interesting question. And a perfect question, I think, to leave this conversation at. These were all of the questions that we had for you. Is there anything, though, about Hatshepsut, Women in Power, your work um, that you'd like to tell us about that we didn't ask you? Um, what What's next on your plate? Yeah, I think you guys hit everything. It was great. Um, so I don't I don't think I need to add anything like that. And what's next for me? Um, I am going to move on to a book about political ideologies, how people link religion and and power and I'm going to write a book about Akhenaten, a biography about Akhenaten as the first religious fanatic in the world. And I think religious extremism is certainly something that we talk about every day, all the time, on the news. And I'm going to do what I did with Hatshepsut, go jump, dive back into the past and try to, to see when it happened the first time, how it happened, why it happened, and see if I can make that ancient story as applicable as possible to what we're dealing with today. Well, we'll definitely be looking forward to that and might have to ask you to come back on the podcast when that book oh, yeah, comes sure out thing. to sure tell us thing. more about it. Not a problem. You'll have to wait a couple of years. It'll take me a while, but I'm, <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on it. Well, just pencil us in for a couple of years from now. <laughs> also, if you want to tell our listeners where they can learn more, both about you and your book, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm out there in the world digitally. I, I try to keep a, a, a good presence. So my Facebook page has almost 50,000 followers. And it's um, Karakuni Egyptologist, starts with a K, K-A-R-A-C-O-O-N-E-Y. And I've got um, a new web page up with all my articles posted, 
and uh, academic work. I actually, my academic work is, um, I'm a coffin specialist, which is a little strange, but essentially I look at, at social competition and how people compete with one another using funerary arts, uh, kind of like... Um, like we use weddings, you know, where you, if you see the bride walking down the aisle in a dress, you know pretty much what socioeconomic class she belongs to, maybe what her ethnicity is, what she's trying to prove. I do the same thing with coffins. So a lot of that work is, is on my website. And, um, yeah, my, my book, The Woman Who Would Be King, is, is available in bookstores everywhere. And uh, thank you guys so much for having me on the show. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. This has been really, really fascinating. Awesome. Huge thanks to Dr. Cooney for taking the time to talk to us about Hatship Set and Women in Power. I know that Caroline and I walked away from that conversation still talking about so much of what Cooney had to say and how Hatshepsut's story applies to women in power and even just women like us who are dealing with day-to-day careers as well. So I don't know about you, Caroline, but that was a really inspiring interview for, for us to do. Yeah, absolutely. I thought she hit on so many incredible points, not only about this amazing figure in history, but also just about womanhood and what her own path has been like. Yeah. So to learn more about Dr. Cooney and to check out her book, The Woman Who Would Be King, you can head over to Kara Cooney. That's C-O-O-N-E-Y dot com. And now I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on Hatshepsut, Women in Power, what we can learn today from ancient women? Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. If you want to tweet us, you can do that at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. Well, I got a letter here from Danielle about our Women in the Construction Industry podcast. She writes, I was excited to see the title of the podcast because I have a f- more than a few stories on the subject. First of all, my mom was the first female to work at a construction site in Ontario. She was definitely hazed and couldn't use the outhouse for fear that the men on her crew would pick it up with a forklift while she was in it, which apparently happened regularly. She did say that after some time, the men she worked with became close like big brothers and looked out for her. As for myself, I've worked in the arboriculture and forestry industries for the past seven years or so. I found school to be an amazing experience and never felt different from the men. I felt that my teachers encouraged me and motivated me to work just as hard as the boys, and they never singled me out based on my gender. Once I started working in the field, however, I encountered men who seemed to loathe me just for being female, and others who were completely in awe that I would do a physical job. I'm more skilled than some of the men I've worked with when it comes to handling a chainsaw, and I believe that having to teach myself the technique has helped. I agree with your points that women don't get the mentorship that men do, and so we have to learn the hard way. I've heard some of the most ridiculous and disgusting things from coworkers, and have also worked with some that seem to think I was invisible. I've also noticed that if I shorten my name, Danielle, to Danny on resumes, I get way more interviews and callbacks, which I assume is because the company believes I'm male. Thankfully, most of my job positions have put me on small crews, so eventually the men and I become close, and in some cases, good friends. I always joke with my female friends that when I start to work with new people, I'm only seen as a woman for two weeks, and then I become a man. At that point, no one helps me carry anything or does any favors. They get that I'm working just as hard as them, and sometimes because of my small size, even harder. I think that even at the higher corporate level I find myself now, women don't get the same pay, respect, or job opportunities as men. However, I'm optimistic that this next generation of female workers, like the six-year-old mentioned in your podcast, my niece, will continue to break down the gender barriers in the male-dominated jobs. So thanks, Danielle. And I have a letter here from Mary. She says, first off, thank you, thank you, thank you. That podcast you all did over women in construction was fantastic. It was ruthless, brutally truthful, and enlightening. I'm emailing you because I'm a current senior pursuing a degree in construction management. I was previously an engineering major, but I changed because construction is the perfect blend of hands-on organization and creativity. 
Essentially, I see it as architecture slash engineering slash contractor combined into one. I haven't had any firsthand experience on a job site yet, but I will say I am one of two girls in the entire program at my school. All the rest are gents. It was the same in my engineering classes, and it was the same in my technical classes in high school. Hardly any girls. And to be honest, I've never known why. There is more opportunity in this field than practically any other. Companies are fighting to hire women because there is such a low percentage of us applying. When I graduate, I can be an estimator, BIM specialist, scheduler, safety coordinator, project engineer, project manager. The list goes on and on. Have I experienced prejudice? Meh. It depends on how you see it or take it. If someone says something inappropriate, I often fire something witty right back. Women have to be ready to face these kinds of situations. It's important not to take it super personally. Harassment rarely happens in school. My classmates respect me, and they learn to because I work my butt off and I complete really quality work. As a woman, I'm more motivated to do my best to represent the gender and gain a higher level of respect. It's sad, but the reality is some of the guys just don't know how to react with a strong tomboy woman who likes to play in the dirt, drive nails with a hammer, and wants to kick butt in this industry. From what I've seen, the guys who do understand all of this are the ones in management and supervisory positions. The construction management field seems to be way less brutal than the trades field from a woman's standpoint. I'm thankful for women like Nicole Curtis on HGTV's Rehab Addict who are true trailblazers. She's making the field more open to women, and I hope to do the same someday. Dude, I love Nicole Curtis and Rehab Addict. My boyfriend sit around the house and watch it all the time. So <laughs> she, I agree, she is a good figure. And I'm glad you're getting out there and doing what you love to do. Thanks for writing in. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. We've gotten so many letters in particular about uh, women in construction. So keep all of them coming. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our videos and blogs, including Seven Queens Who Fought to Rule, if you're really into learning more about powerful women of yore, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.